Would you please turn uh, to uh, Psalm 74? Uh, that's page 586 in the Church Bibles and 910 in the Large Print Bibles. Uh, we don't have a Sunday school today, but if you feel uh, the need to take any children out, the service is relayed in the foyer back there. So if you uh, go back there, you're very welcome if you want to do that, but at the same time, you're also more than welcome uh, to remain uh, in here. So, Psalm uh, 74. Over this last summer, uh, the head teacher at the village school over, uh, just over the road retired uh, from her position. And she was always a very impressive head teacher for me for one, uh, well, lots of reasons, but one very big reason, and that she was able to remember all of the names of all of the children that are in the school. But not just those children that are in the school right now, but all of those children, it seemed, that have been to the school in the past. So on the school sports day uh, this year, there was children that were now uh, teenagers and sometimes adults that had gone to the school and she would go up to them and say hello, remember their name, remember what secondary school they've gone to and all sorts of information. It was truly uh, amazing. I remember when I first joined the church here, I was ever so thankful for the prayer diary because it had a picture and a name against everybody. Of course, everybody knew who I was and I thought it would be ever so offensive if I would forget who you were. Even so, as I go into Warsaw Town Centre, I do, having done assemblies at the school, children say to me, oh, hello, Mr. Hope. And I often look at them and think, I don't even know who you are. But Mrs. Clark, the head teacher, could always remember who those children were. My memory just is not that good. And I don't need to use the prayer diary so much now, but I'm still thankful for it. But there's a question that some of us may ask, about forgetfulness and remembering names is this. Does God ever forget us? Does he forget us in such a multitude of people? Do you forget God? Now, we all know, we would all say the right answer, I'm sure, of course God doesn't forget us. God knows everything. But how many of you ever feel as though God has forgotten me? How many of you going through affliction wonder, is God really there? Because I don't feel that God is really there. In Psalm 74, Israel was in a time of affliction. And the psalm was written likely by one of Asaph's descendants who had seen Jerusalem destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar had come and he had destroyed Jerusalem. He had destroyed the temple. He had burnt it to the ground. And for the people of God, this was a devastating time. People had been taken into captivity. People had been killed as the Babylonians came on the rampage in Jerusalem. It was a time of great affliction for the people of God. And it seemed as though God had forgotten his people. And the people, as we read this psalm, had forgotten the greatness and the goodness of God. They had forgotten their Father who loves them. 
And although this was written two and a half thousand years ago, isn't those, aren't those feelings still true today? That we can forget the greatness and the goodness of our God. And we can feel as though our Father has forgotten us. This morning in our congregation, there are three categories of people. Either you, are, you have been afflicted, you are being afflicted, or you will be afflicted. All of you are in either one of those categories. Some of you may be in all three of those categories. But affliction is something which comes to us all. For those that don't understand the word affliction, it means... Uh, uh, something that causes suffering. So an illness is an affliction. The death of a loved one is an affliction. Another person could be, and often is, an affliction. For Israel, it was the enemy attacking them. It was an affliction. The Babylonians were an affliction upon the people of God. And it's during affliction that we question God the most. And in Psalm 74, we see this descendant of Asaph questioning God. And he asks God's questions and wonders what on earth is going on. And maybe some of you this morning are asking God these same questions. God, what is going on? Have you forgotten me? And maybe some of you here aren't even asking those questions because you have forgotten him. And as we go through this psalm, and the questions are asked, but not really even answered, we see that God is good in affliction. I'm not going to read the psalm all in one go, we're going to read it in sections, but before we even begin the psalm, we see this uh, phrase, that that it's a, a masculine. Of Asaph. Now, a masculine is not understood by most commentators, but most agree it seems to be a psalm of understanding, which is appropriate because Asaph doesn't understand what's going on. He asks questions to God. He has uh, what I've called a holy outburst. That means he's not angry with God, but he's frustrated with his circumstances and he's wondering what is going on and he's seeking God for the answers. And there's nothing wrong with this. We, we see it all through the scriptures. Some of the Psalms of David are outbursts that God asking God questions. If you read Habakkuk, he's asking God questions. If you read Job, he's asking God questions, wondering why, what is going on, and not understanding. They're not angry with God they, they trust God, but they don't understand what is going on. They want to know why. And Psalm 74 is one of those psalms. Why, God? Why? And we see in, it, in this psalm three sections. We see the affliction, we see a remembrance, and we see a petition. We see an affliction, a remembrance, and a petition. So first of all, let's look at the affliction. Now, the feelings of affliction are described in this psalm before the affliction itself. So let's read verses 1 to 3, and you can see how Asaph feels. Maybe you are feeling this very same way. It begins, O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoulder against the sheep of your pasture? 
Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion where you dwelt. Turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins, all this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. You see there his feelings of frustration, of of questioning, why have you rejected us forever? It felt as though God had abandoned them forever. Now, the abandonment itself doesn't seem to be uh, the problem here because it could have been a chastisement or it could, it could, for various reasons, God could have withdrew himself. The problem was the length. It seemed to be forever. Forever. Why have you rejected us forever? Now, we know that this is not true. God never abandons his people. He never withdraws from us forever. It never lasts forever, but it can feel like it, can't it? It can can feel like forever. I remember when we did a a Mr. and Mrs. competition in our old church and uh, one of the questions got asked was, how long does it take your wife to get ready? And my response was, forever. And in fact, funnily enough, when Paula came back in the room, she actually said, if it was Steve, he would answer forever. Well, of course, that's not true. But I'm sure many men won't nod, but they'll feel like it can feel like that, can't it? But here, we we see this same feeling. It it feels as though it is forever. And then he goes on, Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Well, well, God is, is the good shepherd, isn't he? But here he's angry at his sheep. He's allowing his own people to suffer here. And so in verse 2, he asks God, or says to God, remember, remember the nation you purchased long ago. Israel were the people of God and they were purchased long ago, which refers back to Egypt. If you look in the books of Exodus and in Deuteronomy, you read the language of redemption. That is, God has brought a people for himself. He has bought them. They are his people. But it feels as though God has forgotten that we are his people. And he says, Mount Zion, where you dwell. Remember Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the the dwelling place of God. In Jerusalem, that was the temple. But that has been destroyed by the Babylonians. It's been burnt to the ground. It's no longer there. It, It seems as though the rule and the reign of God in Israel is gone. Remember your people whom you purchased, remember God, your dwelling place. And of course, in the New Testament, the dwelling place of God is his people, isn't it? And so it seems as though for us, we can feel like God has, has left us, he's not remembering us, he forgets that I'm his, 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 his child. It doesn't feel as though he is dwelling in us. It seems as though we're forgotten. It seems as though the enemy that has brought destruction is winning the battle. And that's what we read about, wasn't it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We we are hard-pressed on every side. It's painful. Affliction, it it comes to us. Can can you identify with this anguish? Does this describe you? Has this ever described you? Because it either has, it is, or it will. Perhaps even this morning you're here and you read these words and you say, yes, that's exactly how I am feeling today. 
Well, what caused this anguish? It it could be many number of afflictions for you, but for Asaph, it's in verses 4 to 8. Let's read those words. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved panelling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. Well, the the foes in verse 4 are the Babylonian invaders and they set up their standards as signs. Standards are what the military would use to put in place when they've taken the battlefield. So they would come up and if they'd won the field, they'd put their standard down, their flag. So everybody would know that this field was won by this uh, enemy. And the Babylonians had come, these enemies of God's people, and in God's sanctuary had set their standard in place. And they had brought destruction, they had wielded axes, they had cut through the beautiful carved panellings of the temple, they had burnt the sanctuary of God to the ground. And all the other places where God, uh, God's people worshipped him, the dwelling places of his name in verse 7, everywhere where God was worshipped was destroyed. Now we have an enemy ourselves. In the Lord's Prayer we pray, deliver us from evil. Some versions say, deliver us from the evil one. Now, this talks of evil in, partic- in, in general, but Satan in particular. And like in verse 4 of this psalm, the devil is always trying to plant his standard in your heart. I don't know if you've seen the news this last couple of weeks, but um, we've just come back from Devon where our family live, and there was a lynx that had escaped from Dartmoor Zoo. And uh, this is interesting because uh, a long time ago, a lion escaped from the same zoo and was on Dartmoor. I'd never forget it because we were always wary when we were going on the moors, expecting to see this great big lion. We never did. But the lynx was found. How did they find the lynx? They followed the trail of dead animals that got bigger and bigger as the days went on. So eventually they were, he was killing uh, sheep and they had the, 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 these sheep were killed everywhere and they followed the trail and they found the lynx. I would have been scared if I was on the moors and I had seen a lynx or a lion roaring at me. I did one time wake up in a tent with a sheep and that was scary enough. But the devil prowls around, the Bible says, doesn't it? Like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the devil wields his axe of destruction, trying to destroy all that is beautiful and defiling us through temptation to sin. And his main aim is in verse 8. We will crush them completely. That's what the evil one wants to do to the people of God. We will crush them completely. And there's two forms of attack that the evil one has. First of all, he disturbs our peace, which is through affliction, through trials. And secondly, he inflames our lust, which is through temptation to sin. He disturbs our peace, he inflames our lust. And both of these attacks are attempts to crush us 
either through us saying, I don't want anything to do with this God who is allowing me to suffer. And we walk away from God. And we blame God for all of our problems. Or, in terms of temptation to sin, we walk away from God and we say, this God is restricting my life, I'm going to go and and I'm going to live this kind of life. This this kind of lust-driven, selfish, sinful life. That's what the devil wants us to do. And so we read in 1 Peter 5.8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And in John 17.15, Jesus prays, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So we have Jesus praying that we'd be protected from evil. And in trial and in temptation, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And perhaps this morning, some of you are feeling the terror, hearing the roar of the evil one in your life, either through affliction or through temptation. Perhaps you can identify with verses 9 to 11. Look at verses 9 to 11. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. Israel had five signs in the Old Testament. There was the Ark of the Covenant. There was the cloud that came upon the holy place in the temple. There was the fire on the altar. There was the Urim and Thurim. And there was prophecy. And when the temple was destroyed, all five of these signs disappeared. And they didn't know how long it would be before God would allow those things to return. And the unknown length of this affliction is what's painful here. How long? None of us know how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you? You see the the pain in the length of time, the unknown. And isn't it true oftentimes in our affliction, the pain often is more so because we don't know how long this will be. Sometimes the unknown length is as painful as the affliction itself. And so the psalmist says, how long? Is it, is it forever? Why aren't you doing anything, God? I have no sign. I can't hear you. Isn't it interesting, as you read the psalm, that the enemy is roaring and the enemy has signs, but he can't hear God. Isn't it true in our affliction The sounds we hear are often not those of God, but those of the enemy. And he even asked God in verse 11, God, why do you hold back your right hand? And he asked him to take it from his garment. What what he's saying here is it's as if God is standing like this and not doing anything and just standing there, watching, uncaring. And he's saying to God, take your hand out, do something, God. If God is an all-powerful God, which he is, and he can do anything which he can, then why doesn't he take my suffering away? Is he unable to? Well, of course he's able to. Then, then he's saying, well, why isn't he doing it? 
Why does this person continue to afflict me? Why does this sin continue to beset me? Why does this uh, body not be healed? And a hundred other questions, a hundred other whys. Why God? Why God? Why God? What's going on? Why are you taking this away? And in Psalm 74, we don't receive the answer. We never see the answer in this psalm. God doesn't necessarily take the affliction away. But we do know some things. We know from Scripture that God uses affliction to make us holy. We know through Scripture that God, even in affliction, works all things for our good. Don Carson writes these words, which aren't appearing on the screen, so I'll read read them to you. In short, God is less interested in answering our questions than in other things, securing our allegiance, establishing our faith, nurturing a desire for holiness. If we can't find out why, then what do we do in our affliction? We pray. Yes, we pray for deliverance and sometimes God answers us. But we engage with God like the psalmist does here. We don't ignore God. We engage with God. And what Psalm 74 shows us is that we remember who God is. We remember who God is. And that's the second point. It's the remembrance. The remembrance. And we see this in verses 12 to 17. Look at verse 12 to start with. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. Now there's a turning point in the psalm. Many of the psalms of Asaph have these turning points in the middle. And verse 12 is the turning point. But God. There's the circumstances of affliction. But God. The psalmist remembers his God, who has been king since long ago and who brings salvation on the earth. This God is the only way out of affliction. His silence does not change who he is. The unanswered questions do not change the fact that he is king and he is saviour. And because God is unchanging, we can look at what he has done in the past and we can realise He can do it again. Now this psalm, as many others do, look back to the time of the exodus and the wilderness and the conquest as times when God worked miracles for his people. We see this in verses 13 to 17. Let's read those verses. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up the springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also is the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Notice here how he's constantly using you to refer to God. You did this God. You did that God. Look at what you have done, O God. And in verses 13 to 14, to the beginning, he remembers how God parted the Red Sea by his power. 
and the destruction of the monstrous Egyptian army in the waters. Amazing accounts. Read those Exodus accounts and see the hand of God at work. At the end of uh, verse 14, uh, when he says he gave food to the creatures of the desert, or that Leviathan gave food, he's talking of how Egypt was plundered by Israel as they went into the desert, as the Egyptians just gave away their possessions so the, Egypt, uh, so the Israelites could have uh, possessions and food uh, for a time in the desert. And then in verse 15, we see the description of the, the, the Jordan River being parted as the Israelites walked through into, the, into Canaan. It was you, God, who did these things. And the slavery of Egypt was for hundreds of years, far more lengthy than this exile for God's people in Babylon. In fact, we know from the history of the Bible, after 70 years, the people of God were allowed back to their land. God is the powerful redeemer. He's the powerful redeemer, and that's remembered here. But this psalmist is very clever in the way he writes. And in the same breath as describing what God has done in Israel, he uses language which is very similar to the ancient Near Eastern creation myths. Those verses we read in verses 13 to 17 also describe uh, in a similar way the creation myths of the ancient Near Eastern gods. So in these myths, a god became king by achieving mastery over the primeval chaos in the form of waters. And it was often dramatised by a seven-headed leviathan. And once the waters were mastered, the creator establishes his kingship by establishing a royal residence where he is king. And the myth is referred to here not to show that they're true, they are myths, but to show that God is the king of creation. He is the one that made it. And in later verses, he is the one that owns it. The day is yours. The night is yours. The sun and the moon are yours. The boundaries are set by you. It's showing that God is both the powerful redeemer and the mighty creator. Powerful redeemer, mighty creator. This is our God and the psalmist in his affliction remembers who he is. This is our God, the eternal God, who holds all things in his hands. This is our God, our God, who plans the beginning and the end, who knows the beginning and the end of all things. This is our God, the God who came, who lived a sinless and perfect life. This is our God, the God who died on the cross and who rose again on the third day. This is our God. There is no God like our God. He is the true and living God, all-powerful, almighty, and how often we forget who he is. Unlike the psalmist here, we have the New Testament. We know of God's most mighty act, not freedom from slavery in Egypt, but freedom from sin, from slavery to sin, where Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross and he frees us from the slavery of sin. He makes us a new creation which is more powerful than the creation of the world in seven days. To make us a new creation is the most powerful act of God that there is. And we look forward in the New Testament too to the new heavens and earth where we will dwell in eternity. We remember those things. 
as we look at God's word, as we behold our Saviour, even more, even We can go on. I mean, think back in your own personal life. Those things I've mentioned are things that have happened to all of us. But all of us have a personal testimony. All of us have experienced God in our own personal lives in a million different ways. I can look back. My family can look back at times where God has worked amazing things in our life as individuals, as a family. You can look back, I'm sure, to ways that God has worked in amazing ways in your life. Amazing acts of provision, amazing acts of deliverance. And then there's those things that we don't even know about that God has delivered us from. And if then you're struggling, I can't think of anything, then read biographies of people like George Muller, of C.T. Studd, of Hudson Taylor, and of thousands of other uh, people that God has done amazing works by. And remember the great God that we have. The powerful Redeemer. The mighty creator who is our God. And we can all say he is my God. The psalmist remembers who God is. And then so, at the end of the psalm, he stops asking why. He stops saying how long. Not because those questions have been answered. God never says in this psalm, why is this happening? He never says how long it will be. He just reveals who he is. The remembrance of God has changed the perspective of the psalmist. From focusing on the affliction and the whys and the how longs, the focus on God has changed his perspective so that he prays. So he prays. Now prayer is not effective if we forget to whom we are praying. It is always good, as we pray, to meditate on who God is. And as he remembers God's power, the psalmist moves on to the petition. So we have the affliction, we have the remembrance, and we have the petition. Look at verses 18 to 23. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord. How foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamour of your adversaries the uproar of your enemies which rises continually. The psalmist is praying here and there's really two requests that the psalmist has. First of all, he asks God to destroy his enemies and secondly, he asks God to deliver his people. To destroy his enemies and to deliver his people. The destruction of enemies begins really in in verse 18. He's asking God there to remember how the enemy has mocked him. Now when when we ask God here to remember, it's not because God has forgotten. He's not absent-minded. It's not like I'm trying to remember where I put my car keys, which seems to happen quite frequently. God is not forgetful in that way. This is asking God to do something about it. That's what it means here, to do something about it. 
And that's made clear in verses 22 and 23. He's asking God to defend his cause. And in verse uh, verse 22 and in verse 23, do not ignore the clamour of your adversaries and the uproar that goes on continually. Now this kind of prayer can be, I think, uncomfortable to our uh, Western minds. Surely we should be praying for God to save our enemies rather than to destroy our enemies. But I would ask you to consider when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, your kingdom come, what is it that we are praying? Yes, in your kingdom come, we pray that God would come, his kingdom would come into the hearts of people, that they would be saved. Yes, but we also pray that Jesus would return. As we were singing at the beginning, brothers, this Lord Jesus shall return again. And when he comes, the Bible clearly teaches that not everybody will be saved. The Bible teaches that he will judge his enemies. And when we pray for Jesus to come, we are praying that he would judge. And that is exactly what's going on here. For it is at that time that we will be with God in glory. When we pray for, for, for the future, for, our, for, for, God, for Jesus to come, for us to be in glory, we are in fact praying for God to destroy his enemies. And it is only when that is done that we will have the glory for which we are all longing for. But that second petition here is that God would would, would deliver his people. In verse 19 we read of a dove. And the dove is Israel, his people. Now a dove is harmless. A dove is unable to defend itself when it's thrown to the wild beasts. And that's what happens here. He says, don't let the dove go to the wild beasts, because with the wild beasts, it will be torn apart. And this prayer is that in our affliction, God, don't let me be torn apart. Don't let my enemy tear me to pieces, because I'm your dove. I'm incapable of saving myself. I'm incapable of defending myself. I need you, O Lord, to help me, to protect me, to deliver me from evil. He's praying that God would deliver him, not allow him to be torn. And then in verse 20, he's praying that God would have regard for the covenant because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. This is, is praying really that we would continue to follow Jesus in our affliction. Because in our afflictions, it is those times when we are most tempted to walk away. But he's praying not that I would have the strength, but that God would give the power, give the strength, would remember his covenant, would not let us go. Now the covenant is a promise and we are kept in Christ by God's promise to keep us. When we get to heaven, we're not going to say to God, you you know, God, you better thank me for, for keeping going. No, no, we say thank you God for holding on to me because that's what God does and that's what the prayer is here. Have regard for your covenant. Remember, Lord, the promise you made to keep me. And he is bound to us as our Father, because we are adopted children who have been redeemed, forgiven. We are eternally secure. He is bound to hold on to us. Have regard, Lord, for your covenant. And he says, because violence fills the land. There was was violence in Jerusalem. Listen to these words from Lamentations chapter 5. And verses 11 to 13. This is what the Babylonians were doing in Jerusalem. Women have been violated in Zion. 
and virgins in the town of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones, but boys stagger under loads of wood. That means that that their work was humiliating. They were being treated as slaves. There was violence everywhere. There was violence in, in Zion, in God's dwelling place. Now we live in a violent world and we can apply, you can read some of those words and perhaps even go to some cities in our own nation late on a Friday or Saturday night. But really as we apply this to the dwelling place of God, don't you ever feel that there is violence being done to your own heart? And we're asking God, Lord, keep me in the midst of this affliction. Don't let me go, Lord. Hold on to me. So in verse 19 we see this kind of negative prayer, Lord, don't let me be torn apart. In verse 20 we see the positive prayer, Lord, hold on to me, keep your covenant with me. But verse 21 goes even further still. This asks that we would thrive in the midst of our affliction. It says, do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. So rather than retreating in Uh, in our uh, oppression, he's asking, no, that we keep marching forward, we keep going on in our faith. We pray, Lord, in the midst of this affliction, would you make me holy? Would you keep me going? Would you help me to show the fruits of the Spirit in this affliction? I don't want to retreat, Lord. I don't want to go backwards in my faith. I want to move forwards, even in this affliction. And it is through affliction that God grows his people. He makes us holy. It's so easy, isn't it, in affliction to revert back, to go backwards. But God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to move on, to grow. And it says here, the poor and needy, praise his name, the, the poor and needy are those who are totally dependent on God. Only those that depend on God totally and have all their needs supplied by him can praise his name. And it's in affliction, isn't it, that we realise we are most dependent on God. He prays, Lord, destroy your enemies. Lord, deliver your people. So whether you're in the camp this morning of being afflicted, being afflicted, will be afflicted, our response to Psalm 74 is the same. We look at the greatness of God until it burns within us. And if you're thinking about God and about all that God is and all that he has done, and your heart does not burn within you, you need to look longer and harder. We gaze at God, not glance at God. We gaze at his glory. If you're in affliction, those are the times when often you want to turn away. But no, focus on God. Focus on Jesus. Gaze upon Jesus, upon your Lord and upon your Saviour. Like Jacob prayed in Genesis, I won't let go until you bless me. May that be your prayer. And with that in mind, we humbly pray for the affliction to be destroyed and to be delivered and to grow more and more like Christ through the affliction we have. Let me finish with these words in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. Because one final thing that we ought to remember as we go through affliction is that we, we have a saviour who was afflicted. 
We have a saviour that not just understands our affliction, but was afflicted more than we could ever imagine ourselves. Often we can accuse God of not understanding us, but the truth of the matter is we will never fully understand him. And in 2 Peter, chapter 2, so 1 Peter, chapter 2, and verse 21, we read these words about the Lord Jesus Christ. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Let us pray. Father God, we know that this side of heaven there will be a fiction for your people. All of us have been afflicted, are being afflicted, or will be afflicted. And it's my prayer this morning, our Father, that as we go through those afflictions, that we would not lose sight of the glory that is revealed about you. And would we gaze upon you, O Lord? Would we remember you? And in doing so, Father, we pray for deliverance. But we thank you that that deliverance is ultimately when we are in glory. And I thank you so much that that glory is certain and it is sure and we will be there. We thank you that truly all will be well because it is well with our soul. Amen. We're going to stand and sing. Uh,